Good morning, church. It's good to be with you, and uh, let me just apologize ahead of time for how I sound. I assure you, it's as fun as it sounds, but uh, we will hopefully get to God's Word together and and find uh, a word for us to sustain our souls. Would you join me in prayer before we uh, dive in? Oh, Father, you promise in your Word that your word will surely not return void. It will accomplish that which you have set out for it to do. So this very morning, we are asking you to do that very thing. Don't allow a frail throat or distracted minds to get in the way of what it is you are saying this morning. Help us to sit at the feet of Jesus so that we might hear what it means to truly be blessed. Pray in his name. Amen. I have a hard time being religious when certain people are never incinerated by lightning bolts. That comes from the great philosopher Calvin, as in Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip if you're not familiar with it. And he's getting at something I think we all can resonate with, that sometimes it's really hard to live with people. Maybe it's driving on the road and someone does something just unbelievably unkind to you. And uh, in that moment, you are wishing for that bolt of lightning in your worst moment. Or maybe it's something closer to home in your family, someone who's just really, really hard to love again and again. You you can resonate with this thought, can't you? Uh, Another great philosopher, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, once declared, people are the worst, the worst, right? We all know what what they're talking about. There are moments where it's just hard, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, it's just hard to live with people. We, We let each other down. We say cruel things to each other. We gossip about each other. We're two-faced. I mean, we are the worst. It's tempting to think that people are really the problem, that to view people as obstacles instead of opportunities for blessing. Even within the church, we think this sort of thing. There's a pretty large stream of Christian thought that says that the way to true blessing is to retreat from the world and from people. I found an article about an Ethiopian priest who every morning climbs two hours up a steep cliff, 250 meters up. Uh, to, at the top of this mountain, there's this church that has been carved into the rock. And so he climbs up this treacherous climb each day, and he goes and he sits in this church, and he prays and he reads, and, and this is what he says about himself. He says, I am happy reading my book for the whole day because it's very quiet. There really isn't anyone to talk to. You communicate with God and you share your secrets with him and and then your mind becomes happy and free. Now, I don't want to, for a second, (coughs) suggest that there's no value to solitude. But let's just recognize that it's pretty hard to live out even the most basic of Jesus' commands without being around people. Love your neighbor 
implies being around a neighbor. So that leaves us in a bit of a conundrum. If people are the worst, if they can be seen as obstacles instead of blessings, then what's a citizen of heaven to do? We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, last week we got through the first four what are called the Beatitudes, showing us what it is a citizen of heaven looks like. Those first four Beatitudes are mainly focused on our vertical relationship to God, how the heart of a person and the disposition toward God changes in such a way that <clears throat> excuse me, we, we really start, <clears throat> start to live in light of God's grace. We saw how we were those who declare spiritual bankruptcy, who have nothing good in ourselves, uh, those who mourn over our sin, who are broken over it, how that leads to a gentleness in the very way we think of ourselves and how we treat others, that we become meek, and how we start to have these new desires. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, this week we're going to turn from the vertical to the horizontal. These last four Beatitudes deal less with our relationship to God and more with how it is we live in the hardest of places in this world with people. We're going to find the citizens of heaven will find blessing in that very hard place in relationship with people. We'll see that in the four different beatitudes we look at as we move through this passage together. Let's begin in verse 7, our first of these beatitudes. We'll see how citizens of heaven find blessing in mercy. Jesus says in verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is helpful in giving us a definition for what mercy means by contrasting it with a similar idea, that of grace. He says that grace is associated with men in their sin, and mercy is associated with men in their misery. Another way you could say it is that Mercy is seeing the misery of someone and being moved to action. In our household this week, we had an opportunity to show mercy right, right there in our kitchen. Um, I was coming home a little late one day, and uh, my, my parents are in town. By the way, say hi to them if you uh, get a chance after service. And uh, they were doing what often is the case when they're visiting. They were helping us cook and having a nice full refrigerator, and uh, so precious of my mom had been cooking. And so I arrived after all the festivities were done. The, the, the food was already finished, but I could smell. It smelled really, really good in the house, and it turned out they cooked something kind of spicy that had some jalapenos involved. So uh, I'm sitting on the couch with Precious afterward, and we're talking about the day, and we're getting tired, and, and she just kind of innocuously rubs your eye. And you, can, you know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> so uh, then she rubs her eye again, and then before you know it, by, by the way, she gave me permission to tell this story, so it's all right, okay? So then she, before you know it, she is running into the kitchen to the, get to the sink, and she's getting her face underneath, trying to wash her eyes out. Now at that moment, those of us who were downstairs, we, we immediately all sprung into action. Uh, we... we made like a perimeter around her. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure we were doing much good, but we were like, what, what do we do? And, th and then someone had the bright idea that, oh yeah, uh, w w you're supposed to use bread or milk to, uh, to alleviate spiciness. 
So we couldn't figure out any way to use bread, so we got a bowl of milk, and we helped her, and she was able to wash out her eyes, and uh, if you've never dunked your face in a bowl of milk, Precious can tell you what it's like. Um, Now, the reason we were moved to action is because it was very obvious she was in discomfort, that she was in misery. and That's mercy. You, You see the misery of another, and you are moved to try and alleviate it. Christians have been in the mercy business from the very beginning. The early Christians were known for caring for the poor, for finding children that had been left to die from exposure and taking them in. Think of all the hospitals and mercy missions that were created in the name of Christ. It's because we Christians are people uniquely who understand that when we see misery, we are bound, we must act. Now, that's certainly true for physical suffering, but it's even more so true for spiritual suffering. When when you see the plight of someone who has no hope because of their separation to Christ, it should move you to try and alleviate that suffering. Think of the Apostle Paul. At one point, he has a vision of this man from Macedonia, And this man pleads with him to come and help him. And Paul takes that vision as a call from God that he is to come with the good news of the gospel to an area that has not yet heard it. That's why we send missionaries all over the world. Sometimes at great cost, sending our best and brightest, our loved ones, many times never even to come back. Because we see the misery of life without Christ. And we're moved to try and act. Jesus tells a parable about how we are to think about mercy in our relationship to God and how we treat each other. It's uh, oftentimes called the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, In it, there's a, a man who has run up a debt that is so over the top, you're just supposed to laugh. Uh, It's a debt, the equivalent of more money than the Roman Empire would take in over a decade. It would be like saying he ran up on his American Express card a debt of 100 quadrillion dollars. There's no way anyone could ever pay it back. And he comes before the king and he begs for mercy. And amazingly enough, the king says, you know what? I'm going to wipe your debt clean. Then he sends him out, out of his presence, a a newly debt-free man. And then what happens right afterward? Well, this newly debt-free man comes across another servant, one who owes him a really comparatively little amount of money, the equivalent of like $20,000. And uh, he demands that this guy pay him back. And when the guy says, I don't have the money, give me some time, he starts choking him, and uh, the the king hears about it and is furious. Uh, The whole point of that parable that Jesus tells is to say that those who have really understood what type of mercy they've received from God have to show it to others. We could say it another way. We could say those who are spiritually bankrupt have to write blank checks in mercy. You see, if you've received mercy from God, that means that you are acknowledging that you had an infinite debt that your sins were so bad that God couldn't just shrug his shoulders and do away with them, that he had to send his perfect son down into this earth to be a perfect sacrifice, to die in your place. 
The fact that he did that was the greatest act of mercy ever seen. And he did that so that now you can turn around and be merciful to others. We holding on to bitterness in our hearts? Has someone wronged you? Is someone pleading for your forgiveness and you just can't get around to giving it to them because they've hurt you too much? Friend, the poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, they write checks of mercy that are blank. We have an unlimited store of mercy because the cross crushes any reason we have to be bitter. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Second, citizens of heaven find blessing in sincerity. That's what we find in verse 8. Jesus says here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, I have to acknowledge that we live in a day and age where sincerity comes at a premium. Uh, We don't see lots of examples of people that are the same as the images they project, that are really, say they are one thing, and in fact are that same thing. Uh, Just within the last couple weeks, uh, there was a very prominent politician who said something about the uh, Me Too movement, about uh, uh, women's, uh, getting justice for women who have been uh, abused. And uh, within a couple weeks, it came out that he himself had been engaged in this very thing he had been decrying. Well, why is it that people keep on putting up fronts only to be exposed, it seems like, every single week? Well, because frankly, it looks like it pays off. If you sell the right image, if you spin the facts the right way, it seems like you get ahead in this world. Yet Jesus here says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, this is one of those sections that uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is quoting from an Old Testament passage. So if you have your Bible, flip with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. We want to be whole Bible Christians, and so it's good if we, we understand how it is that the, the Old Testament ties into even the New Testament. Psalm 24, I'm going to read verses 3, or, 3 and 4. Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So in this psalm, the psalmist is telling us there's one particular type of person that's allowed into God's presence. The the image is used of God's holy hill. Jerusalem is always described of as as a hill and the, the temple would be the highest point. So who is it that's welcomed into this holy God's presence? Gives us four things. He says, he who has clean hands, that's ritual purity. He who has done the proper cleansings externally. And a pure heart, that's the internal aspect of it. That's the actual inside state of their heart and their soul. Who does not lift up their soul to what is false. That's avoiding idolatry, worshiping the true God. And, de- and does not swear deceitfully. Uh, that's someone whose very words 
are trustworthy and transparent. What is it Jesus is quoting from this psalm to, to show us? He's showing us that citizens of heaven are to be utterly sincere before God and man. They're supposed to be the same people that they present themselves to be, both in public and in private. No masks, no fronts, just the real deal the whole way down. Now Jesus holds out the promise here that those who are pure in heart will see God. That's the, the promise of what's called the, the beatific vision. That You can think back to your Old Testament to that moment where Moses actually sees the glory of the Lord passing in front of him. God says he did something like put his hand over Moses to shield him for the full force of his glory. And yet we are promised something even greater than what Moses saw. That one day after our souls have been perfected and freed from sins and, and we are like Christ, that we will actually see God. Friends, that means that even as right now we are fully known by God, truly known by Him, one day we will see Him and we will truly know Him. You see what this means? There, there's no front. There's no fakery. It's just the real deal, both directions. Now, as believers, we should be the quickest people in the world to be able to admit we are what we are. When you go into a small group, you shouldn't expect that you're going to sit around with a group of nice people that have their lives all put together, right? I hope you know this. Before you go to a small group, it's possible to know the worst thing about each person in that group. I'll give you a little secret. Every single person in that group is a sinner just like you. It's true, yeah. So it, while you may not know the specifics of each other's sins yet, you can be open and quick to admit, yeah, I am a sinner in need of grace. When we mess up at work, we don't need to be like those who find their identity in their jobs and try and cover over our mistakes try and spin them so that someone else gets the blame. No, we can be totally pure in heart, totally sincere. God already sees us as we are, and one day we will see him as he is. Who are we trying to hide from? Friends, we should long for our lives to be marked by consistency, for us to live the same way on Sundays when we come to church, as the rest of the week as we go about our days. It's a, a great mark that should worry you in your life when you find yourself living one way in one place around one group of people and a different way in another place around a different group. Maybe you have a group of friends that you find yourself telling jokes around that you would never tell around your Christian friends. Maybe you watch a certain type of movie with a certain group of people that you really probably wouldn't watch with your small group. Friends, we should long to have this sort of purity of our, of our hearts. Not to say we're ever going to be sinlessly perfect in this life, but that we could be transparent and afraid of nothing. Because God's already seen the darkness in our soul, and yet still he showed us his mercy. We should long for consistency to be pure in heart. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Third, citizens of heaven find blessing in peacemaking. Jesus tells us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, it's easy to want to avoid confrontation. Uh, Some of us have more of a stomach for it than others. But hardly any of us enjoy that feeling of knowing that there's a strain in a relationship and, and dealing directly with the issue at hand. This is even true at the national level. Back in before the days of World War II, there was a doctrine called appeasement that was attempted to try and pacify uh, Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler. The idea was that if you just gave Hitler what he wanted, he would go away and stop making noise. He would stop showing aggression. So one guy who history has not been very kind to over the years, a guy by the name of Neville Chamberlain, he was a prime minister of England prior to World War II, Uh, He pushed this idea that they just need to give enough to Hitler to satisfy him and he would not go to war, essentially. So here's a a quote from him. Uh, Didn't make it in my notes. Uh, Apologize on that. Uh, Oh, here we go. Got it. Backside of the notes. Save the day. (laughs) Neville Chamberlain said, I am sure that someday... Oh, I need to give you this piece of information. So uh, in an effort to appease Germany, uh, they actually gave away a country. Uh, they gave Czechoslovakia to Germany. And, uh, and so this is Chamberlain talking after that moment. He said, I'm sure that someday the Czechs will see what we have did was to save them for a happier future. I sincerely believe that we have opened the way to that general appeasement, which alone can save the world from chaos. Now, the hindsight of history is not kind to that quote. Czechoslovakia uh, is not thankful for being given to the clutches of Adolf Hitler, and the only way peace really came to the world was at great cost. Millions and millions of lives given before peace could be had. So often we are satisfied for a form of appeasement that isn't really peace. What Jesus is calling us here is not the cheap sort of peace that comes from pretending everything's all right, from placating, from enabling. No, Jesus is calling us here to wage peace, to to pay the costly price of doing what needs to be done to bring true unity and harmony. Now, let's just be honest, that's uncomfortable. Confronting someone who has harmed you, inviting someone back to your home that did something very, very unkind to you, uh, that, that probably makes you feel queasy just thinking about it. Jesus here tells us why we are to do this. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, sonship in the ancient world is very different from how we think of it today. Um, my dad, I mentioned he's here. He uh, was an airline pilot. Um, now, just because I am his son, you would not want to be in an airplane that I am flying. <laughs> I've spent my, my days learning a different craft. 
Um, and that's true for the vast majority of us. Very few of us end up uh, going down the same road as our parents in terms of what we do. Now, that didn't used to be the case. It used to be the case that there weren't universities and trade schools and things. And so very often, you ended up doing the same thing your parents did because your parents taught you how to do it. So if you were the baker's son, it meant you baked. If you were the blacksmith's son, it meant you smith. See? Sonship. Uh, even in the Bible, this is true. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson points out that when the Bible calls someone a son of, like son of worthlessness or son of Beelzebub, it's saying you are engaging in the same activity as your daddy. You're son of worthlessness, that means you're engaging in worthless activity. So Jesus here says, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons of God. The idea here is that if you go about this costly waging peace in the relationships God's put you in, you're going about God's work. You're doing the very thing God did. Think with me. How, how is it that you managed to find peace with God? Was it a cheap peace? Did God just pretend like everything was all right? Or did he pay the highest price possible to bring true peace? To take those who were his enemies and bring them close as sons and daughters. Brothers and sisters, this means we need to be willing to pay the price to wage peace in our own relationships. Maybe you've got someone this afternoon that you may need to make a phone call to. Someone who you'd frankly rather not talk to. But who you know deep down God's put you in this person's life for a reason. And there's a price to be paid. But it's worth it. Because you are a son of God. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. As hard as that word is, Jesus leaves us with the hardest word last. Citizens of heaven find blessing in persecution, verses 10 through 12. One commentator said that Jesus left this last one for last and expanded on it unlike the others because it's frankly shocking. He tells us, blessed are those who are persecuted. He says, rejoice and be glad. Really, Jesus? Have you seen what happens when people are persecuted? It's not pretty. People's families are ripped apart. People lose jobs, lose reputations. Throughout the history of Christianity, millions of people have lost their lives because of persecution. And Jesus is telling us to rejoice, to be glad. If we're going to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to look carefully at his words. First, he, he applies limitations to the people that are called blessed. First, there's a limitation of righteousness. Those who are persecuted for righteousness 
sake. That is, those who are being persecuted because of the fact they are living to God's holy standards and the people around them feel convicted by that fact to the point where they actually lash out. If you're paying attention to the news, you probably are sensing some of this in the wind in the place where we live. Just this last week, we had two examples here in Indianapolis. A teacher in Brownsburg who was unwilling to use some of the terminology demanded by the sexual revolution ended up losing his job over it. And a CEO at CrossFit over a dispute that happened, came out of a location here in Indianapolis, mind you, uh, was fired from his job for insisting on things that the Bible clearly insists on. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is not the same as being persecuted for our own quirks of our personalities, our own tendencies to be harsh. No, this is a type of persecution from comes from insisting on the things that God has said are righteous and paying the price as a result. The second category is that of association. You can see that in the extension of the Beatitude in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That is expressly the name of Jesus and what he represents is what causes the offense. Years ago, Precious and I got a, a chance to go uh, on a mission trip to Israel. And it was uh, a fascinating one. We were working with an organization called Jews for Jesus, uh, doing street evangelism in Tel Aviv. Um, now, what you need to know is uh, Israel as a country has religious freedom as we do here in the United States. But culturally, there is a much greater cost to be paid for associating with the name of Christ. We were told before we went that uh, particularly people of Jewish ancestry who come to Christ very often have family members disown them. They've been known to lose jobs. And uh, more relevantly to us, they told us, uh, yeah, oftentimes when people are out evangelizing, uh, they get threatened and sometimes even physically harmed, like beaten up. So we, we went on this mission trip, and, and we found it uh, to be the case. Uh, they had us put on T-shirts that in Hebrew just said, his name is Jesus. That was it. His name is Jesus. And they told us, you have to cover up the T-shirts before we get to the place where we're going to stand on the street corners and try and talk with people. Uh, because once people see your shirts, it's going to set off a series of events that we won't be able to stop. And sure enough, you, you, we walk out to the location and, and like a, a flash mob, like all at once, we'd all take off our coats and we have these shirts on, you know. And you could feel the contempt as soon as you took off the, your coat and, and people saw that shirt, you could just feel them staring daggers at you. People cursed at us, spit at us. No one took a swing at any of us, but um, the missionaries there, just a few months before we got there, one of their missionaries had been hospitalized because a religious person decided it was his duty before God to go and beat this guy up for associating with Jesus. Now, we live in a, a place where the cost of following Jesus is still relatively low. But realize for many believers around the world and back through the ages, association with Christ 
is a matter of life and death. Jesus puts before us a blessing that is beautiful in its clarity it brings to us. He says you are blessed, that you can find joy because you will have all the riches of heaven waiting waiting you as an inheritance. The question is, do you really believe it? Say when you want to live for Jesus, one question you can ask yourself is, would you be willing to die for him? Jesus here lays out for us the road that he himself walked. He lived it to the point of death on the cross. And now he invites us to be willing to follow him. There's one other blessing that Jesus gives here. He says that when you experience this type of persecution, it actually confirms you're on the right team. He he says that uh, in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says that uh, when, when you see this happening to you, it's actually confirmation, like all the prophets God has sent before you, that you're on the right team. This is how sinful hearts react when they come in contact with citizens of heaven. Now, I, I don't say all this to build a martyr complex within each of us here. I, I don't expect most of us will be asked to pay this sort of a price. And yet we're asked to be willing to if God were to call us to. We're not to think that believers in other parts of the world or who lived at different times have some different set of rules, some different set of expectations to live by. Now, in God's providence, he asks some of us to show that we are worthy of the kingdom of heaven by being persecuted for it. And others of us have fairly little we have to pay for following Jesus. And yet all of us are called to the same thing. To be willing to pay that price if it were asked of us. So let me just ask you, would you die for him? Would you die for him? Maybe you don't know how to answer that honestly because it's just so far out of your realm of thinking. And yet our tutor Jesus is showing us if we're going to live faithfully among people, if we're going to find blessing in the hardest place, we need to be able to answer that question. Would you die for him? I can guarantee you this. If you would die for him, then you could live for him. Citizens of heaven find blessing the hardest of places, even in persecution. We'll close with the story of uh, a group of Christians who found this to be the case. If you haven't yet read the book, uh, Killing Fields, Living Fields, I encourage you to pick up a copy. Uh, It's not the type of book you can read lightly or without shedding tears, but it's the type of book every Christian needs to read. It chronicles the plight of the Cambodian church in the midst of the genocide that the Khmer Rouge uh, committed. Uh, the Communist Party, the Khmer, called the Khmer Rouge, took over the country by force. 
and quickly started killing off anyone that might pose a threat to them. They started off with the professors and the educated, and pretty quickly after that started going down to the religious, including the newly growing Christian church. The suffering's incredible to even think about. Um, and the book shares simply heartbreaking stories. Brothers and sisters who this world was not worthy of, who followed Jesus to their deaths. Near the end of the book, a missionary is doing work, mercy work, in a camp on the other side of the border in Vietnam. Um, as people are fleeing from the Khmer Rouge, very few of them are making it, but some of them are managing to get across the border to these camps. And uh, little by little, a small collection of believers finds each other and gathers. One of them was a pastor, and uh, he found literally a cardboard box and some beaten up old Bibles and a couple hymn books. And there, after being through hell, they held a church service. The missionary listened in as a, cow, as a crowd started to gather around them, and he heard them singing this song. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. This is what he wrote about that experience. He said, and the Lord whispered to me, they came from the furnace with no smell of burning upon them, no trace of bitterness, no anger, no why this, no why that. But there they were, kneeling in the dust, ragged and hungry, all having lost at least one family member to the Chimera Rouge, extolling the love of God. Citizens of heaven find blessing in the hardest of places with people. Sometimes that means showing mercy. Sometimes it means putting yourself in the middle and waging peace, being a peacemaker. Sometimes it means giving up your very life for Christ. But it's always worth it. Because the king we follow and the kingdom he's ushered in outweighs any suffering we might have in this world. Citizens of heaven find blessing in the hardest of places because they follow Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord Jesus for being the type of king that we can follow through any difficulty, for treating us so tenderly and compassionately that no matter how others treat us, no matter how hard the relationship, we can show the same mercy and grace that you've showed us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we don't know that we would have the courage to give our life for you the way you have told us in this passage that we must. And yet we know that following you is always worth it, regardless of the cost we must pay. 
would you help us to be those who are worthy of your kingdom to by your grace pay any cost to be known as your disciples. We pray this all in your mighty name. Amen.